Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I would like to put a hypothetical question. It is a question I have put to many Englishmen since the last war. Suppose Germany had won the war, had invaded and occupied England, and that after a long lapse of time and many bitter struggles, she was finally brought to acquiesce in admitting England's right to freedom and let England go, but not the whole of England. All but, let us say, the six southern counties. These six southern counties, those commanding the entrance to the narrow seas, Germany, let us suppose, had singled out and insisted on holding herself with a view to weakening England as a whole and maintain the security of our communications to the Straits of Dover. Let us suppose Germany was engaged in a great war in which she could show that she was on the side of the freedom of a number of small nations. Would Mr. Churchill, as an Englishman, who believed that his own nation had as good a right to freedom as any other, not freedom for a part merely, but freedom for the whole, would he, whilst Germany still maintained the partition of his country and occupied six counties of it, would he lead this partitioned England to join with Germany in a crusade? I do not think Mr. Churchill would. Would he think the people of partitioned England an object of shame if they stood neutral in such circumstances? I do not think Mr. Churchill would. Mr. Churchill is proud of Britain's stand alone after France had fallen and before America entered the war. Could he not find it in his heart, the generosity to acknowledge that there is a small nation that stood alone, not While de Valera defended Ireland's neutral stance during the Second World War, a massive population movement was taking place throughout Europe. People being transported to die. People fleeing oppression and invading armies. People running from the consequences of their own activities. People fearful, hurt by war, in search of refuge. Some came to Ireland where neutrality offered a haven of ambiguous peace. I left Berlin in 1934. I mean, we ran away in 1934. This was one day I shall never forget. Um, my mother 
and uh, my sister and myself, we went out just to buy a pair of shoes for my sister. And it was on a rainy, very drizzy, dark day in October. Uh, we, I remember distinctly we came home and a neighbor stood outside and uh, she whispered something in my mother's ears. And then all of a sudden, I saw my mother's face changing. She actually expressionless. And she said, quick, 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 go into your rooms and pack. And take all warm clothes with you, everything what you can get. But no records, nothing else, nothing, not your personal possessions. Only what you have to wear, what you can wear, and what will be useful. Sabine Schultz, German Jew, arrived Ireland 1938. After the, the invasion of, of Normandy, what the French called the liberation of Normandy in '44. American troops advanced towards Brittany, so we left Rennes a day or two before they reached Rennes, and slowly along the Loire Valley we uh, made our way back to Germany. Young Guillaume, Breton nationalist, arrived Ireland 1948. We were planning to go to South America, Montevideo, because that was the only country which was free of prejudice against Germany at that time. We couldn't go to England, to France, to Spain, to Portugal, everywhere. They wouldn't let you in. They would send you back to, to East Germany as refugees. Gunter Kohler. German U-boat sailor, arrived Ireland 1951. I wasn't pleased uh, about the idea of leaving Germany when he told me I should sell everything and dissolve the flat and come after. I wasn't pleased then. But after a while I, I got to thinking to make a better life somewhere else would be better. Erika Kohler, married to Gunter Kohler, arrived Ireland 1951. The Gestapo came in a black car, and that was known, that they are taking people away. And the neighbors told that to my mother. And my mother got very frightened and very kind of, uh, she was, just she didn't know what to do in one way. But then otherwise, we were, we didn't, we couldn't make out what my mother wanted us to do. She didn't explain it enough to us. We only went in, we packed, and then later on, more than less, we found out what my mother said, we have to leave, otherwise they'll take us. People was disappearing from time to time, but that is nothing new. It happens all over the world. 
every day nearly. So I, I wouldn't put much heed to that now. My mother said, we're going to go to war. So that's why she's to her mother, to her parents and my grandparents. And, um, but I didn't want to go there. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know Poland. I don't know Warsaw. I didn't know my relations. I have never been there. And I could not visualize what kind of future will I have over there. So um, my mother sat, she sat motionless all the time. We went to the station and um, we went into the train. I remember like today, and nobody spoke. None of us spoke. My mother sat there, and we were sat there, huddled unto her, keeping to her, holding her hands, but nothing was spoken, and nothing was said. And then I knew that she is also very, very, very sad and lonely, and we were all very sad and lonely going there. And when we arrived there, I don't know. I don't even remember arriving there because it was all somehow like a bad dream. It was a really, what shall I say, unbelievable um, confrontation with something which I never envisaged. Poverty, a ghetto, very religious people living there, very religious, ultra-Orthodox, and but the poverty, I have never known poverty like that. Um, and I find myself very uh, isolated because I didn't speak the language. I had no affiliation with the peoples at all because we came from different backgrounds. Um, I could not understand the way of living, of the, the outlook. Uh, the one day and the next day and the next day the same thing, praying, 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 going to Yeshiva, Shabbos, with, they go with the, with the, with the cooking um, for Friday. They used to go to the bakeries to put their cookings in. I don't know what it was. To me, it was a life which is just an endless battle for, for survival. I had the feeling if I don't go, get out of there, I go to seed. I used to, I, to, I vegetate, I won't have no life left anymore myself. Sabina's father had gone abroad some time previously to find a place for his family to live. Eventually, he came illegally to Ireland. One day, I wrote to him a very sad letter. I wrote to him that if I don't get out of Warsaw, I just die. I cannot stay there. It's impossible for us to stay there. My sister, my mother, we were so sad and so lonely because the family, we, we had nothing in common with our families. Coming from Berlin to, into a ghetto is something, is unbelievable. Uh, 
the circumstances are so different. So, um, so my fa- I wrote to my father, and he was very taken back with my letter. So he he wrote to me. He'll try his best to get me over first. And right enough, he asked someone if he could write a letter in their name to me, uh, that they are related to me, and that they're very ill, and I have to come over just to see them for four weeks or for three weeks or for two weeks. He only wanted to get me out. So right enough, I received the letter and I went to the consul that time. It was actually, it was the British consul where I had to go for an Irish visa. And he said to me, it's a very sad letter and he feels very sorry for me, but as Chamberlain is gone to Munich now, they don't know what's going to happen and he cannot give me any. I, and I told him, I said, please, only for him one week, I must see my aunt before she dies on cancer. So before I said anything, and I was crying naturally because I was so over overcome with all my worry I want to get out and somehow he put the stamp on my sister was taken to Medanic concentration camp and my mother was murdered in the ghetto We read about it, about the concentration camps, about all the abuses of the regime. But uh, we hadn't been part of it, we hadn't seen it, so it didn't take much notice, really. Uh, What the German had done, that was none of our business. And uh, it was regrettable, of course, but we had not seen it, not taken part into any of those uh, businesses. Well, I became a nationalist in 1940, when, after the arrival of the Germans, the Breton press was allowed to uh, publish again. And to my amazement, I discovered that uh, what I had been told at school was not true, that there was a country called Brittany. It had a history of its own, a long, very long history. It had been independent for 10 centuries and uh, compelled by force to uh, enter into the kingdom of France. Uh, I was so revolted that I decided I was going there and then to study the question very deeply. And uh, I I joined the Nationalist Party uh, and then uh, accepted the position in the party. I then joined the youth movement, two of them, two youth movements, and uh, uh, joined all different, a lot of different organizations, uh, Breton classes, for instance. I learned dancing, I learned, I learned to play the bagpipe with thousands uh, of people. So I was fully, fully nationalist. Brussels and two other more glass, the most Bindinian brass, which my wine is very and were girl at Sclerigen. The German allowed us, or allowed the nationalists, 
to uh, start their publicity, the, their newspapers and publish books. Uh, they started uh, using the radio, having a program on the radio, something which had never been done before, and uh, daily program on the radio. A uh, lot of things like that, which allowed people to, to get to know the, the aims and the purpose of the nationalist movement. Also, you had in certain sections of the German uh, foreign affairs, people who knew of the Breton question and thereby were favor, in favor of uh, support. But uh, on the whole, it was a question of dividing the old, the old methods. After 1942-43, uh, especially when the Germans decided to mobilize as many French people as they could to go and work in Germany, uh, a lot of French people decided to uh, resist, or resist by disappearing, resist uh, this effort of the Germans to force them to come to Germany. And uh, had no intention of either going to Germany or, or joining them in the Maquis. Well, I was, uh, the, the fact is that I was not active in anti-German affairs or activities in itself uh, marked me. When the resistance movement began to attack the Germans on a more serious scale, when they began to shoot uh, Breton nationalists because uh, they suspected them to be collaborators. Uh, we decided that we should try and defend them and we had formed uh, little military groups and eventually all those groups were uh, gathered in Rennes and we joined as a group the German army. We were lucky in Germany that the Breton were pass was passing at the time, who had been uh, compelled to come to Germany to work, had a good camera, and he took photographs of us, and years after the end of the war, I got a copy, or I got the negatives from him, and I had the pleasure of uh, being able to print them. And there is one here of the five of us, my brother on the right hand side, and me on the left hand side, and those three here. This chap here was for many years teaching in Dublin, teaching English in Dublin. This man went to Spain, I don't know what happened to him, and this one has disappeared. I don't know what happened to him either. The uniform is one of the German SS. Uh, automatically all foreigners uh, serving in the German army were put in the SS section which was, uh, in theory, anyway, the, the elite of the German army. You see the pips on the, on the collar. I was corporal.
Alan was considered by us as the, the ideal to, uh, to achieve freedom, independence from the, the oppressors. And they were, we thought there was no reason why we shouldn't achieve the same results and get rid of the French. So we went, we came to Ireland. To, uh, so we, we landed in Castleton Bay, and it was already dark, so I didn't see very much of Castleton Bay. It was probably seven or half past seven in the evening. Uh, we were taken to, to a house for, uh, to take part in the Cayley, and we danced there until we went back to bed that night. In 1941, I joined the Army Navy voluntary, so I could pursue my education as engineer. And I was sent then to the U-boat uh, schools for training on torpedoes, which I was sent then to France on the submarine base in La Rochelle. In 1943, I was sent back again to Germany to build and teach people to operate one-man submarines, one-man torpedoes. We got married, yeah, in 1944, and um, naturally the boy was born nine months later, and my husband was in the Navy by the submarines, and uh, had never seen the, the boy. He was, we just got married and he went out to the front then. With them boats we were then afterwards dispatched to Italy, where in the end of the war we were um, capitulated to the Americans in Trieste. The Americans sent us then from Trieste to the Russians and then from Russia into Yugoslavia with Tito, and it stayed there, not voluntary. It stayed there until 1948, Christmas 1948, when I came back home again. He didn't look the same. He had short hair, and uh, he was a bit thinner, and uh, looked a bit more mature, actually. <laughs> mature as when I last saw him. He was only a young boy then, really. But... Uh, he looked very mature, and then that was it. He was home again. It was grand. Well, I go back with mixed feeling, of course. Uh, just so much to meet my family again, but to stay over in there would be for me impossible. I know very well the day I came back to West East Germany that I wouldn't stay there. The occupation is still there, of the Russian or American or French or English. There's still occupation. 
putting their ideas into practice on your soil and uh, I just couldn't live with that. And rather than fight and die, I'd rather go away or somewhere else. I'd first found out that we'd be leaving after the baby was born, my second baby. And the 3rd of November, she was born. And the 4th of November, my mom, she sent a telegram to where he was, up near the seaside. And it came back telling me that they weren't there anymore. Uh, so I was ac actually flabbergasted. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what happened. And uh, I was crying my eyes out lying in bed there. And then the next day, it was all over the newspapers, in all local newspapers, that the owner of the, of the rubber factory had skipped it with a few men over to the west. And that's how I knew that my good husband has gone. I worked in a rubber company, which was a state-owned, but semi-state-owned, to production of uh, rubber conveyor belts and, and uh, such a art. And the owner of the factory, he says to me, there's a boat, a fishing boat or a yacht in the harbor of Tralsund that was erected in 1944 by the Russian when they came in. And I was lying there for the last four years now underground. But it's a nice uh, body, it's a galvanized steel boat and it was easy to repair. So we lifted it, we took it into dry dock, and then we built it out as a fishing boat. Eighteen months, we had it nearly ready to go. And by that time, we have decided that we will go the first possible moment over to the west. I felt abandoned. That's what I felt. Abandoned, and, and I thought, well, if he's gone, he's gone. He might never come back. But then I thought it over again. I was lying there and thinking, and and I said, no, I don't think he'll do that to me. And tried so. After a few weeks, that settled there, probably, I got um, a letter through a friend, through a third friend. And that's how we got in contact again then. And so uh, I sold um, most of my things, and it so happened that my sister was uh, getting married and uh, she moved into my flat and she bought most of the... I gave her most of the furniture. And I sent uh, bedding and stuff on to my husband and then off I went. The, the, the boat is 60 feet long, had a 12-foot uh, beam and the 18-foot draft with a key length on the big 80-horsepower diesel engine. I was quite able to sail between 18 and 20 knots through the water at ease. We could have made South America if nothing else would have happened. <laughs> we were three days out in the Biscay, nearly 200 miles north of Vigo in Spain, when the storm came up and we were halfway shipwrecked. But we could keep the thing, the ship floating, and we were drifting towards Ireland. And we were staying on to Ballycotton and to Cork in Ireland. But we landed in Ballycotton with the help 
of uh, with the help of the Ballycotton lifeboat. Well, when I arrived, it was raining. It was in the evening. And I couldn't see very well. The only one thing that struck me were the small little houses. I was used to very, actually very large and high, high um, buildings. And I said to my father, is that Dublin? Um, the next day, when I went out and during the day, in the daylight, I saw, I was in different avenue, actually. Again, I saw the small little red houses, you know. And this impressed me very much because it was so kind of, like I, I thought it's a small, small, small town somehow, more of a provincial town. Uh, but then uh, um, I got used to it. The reception in Ballycotton was absolutely exactly opposite than in any other harbour we have been in before. People wasn't asked us for anything. They just wanted to see the baby. They was interested where we come from, where we want to go, and helped us in any way they could. But the first people ever treated us like human beings, not only like Germans, the, 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 who lost the war, but as just another human being, irrespective of what you did before. First thing that struck me about Ireland was the people were still a little backward, sort of in their dressing, dressing, you know, dressing sort of very long and kind of ancient. That's what struck me first. About people and their children, they had big ribbons in their hair, which we never saw in Germany at all for a long time. Big ribbons. My two bedside books when I was at home were The Life of Borg Pierce and My Fight for Irish Freedom of Dan Breen. And I had a fancy idea that uh, Ireland was a Gaelic country. And I was surprised when I landed in Castleton Bay to find the name of shops or hotel in English. That was my first big surprise. The ideal Ireland that we would have, the Ireland that we dreamed of, would be the home of a people who valued material wealth only as a basis for right living of a people who, satisfied with frugal comfort, devoted their leisure to the things of the spirit, a land whose countryside would be bright with cosy homesteads, whose fields and villages would be joyous with the sounds of industry, with the romping of sturdy children, the contests of athletic youths, and the laughter of happy maidens, whose firesides would be forms for the wisdom of serene old age the home, in short, of a people living the life that God desires that men should live. We understood, but I don't know where it came from, that we would be allowed to live in this country if we landed here, but that the government of the time, uh, the various government, couldn't help us to reach a country. As everybody knows, uh, the Irish are very fond of the French. I presume they didn't want to antagonize them. So if we could come to this country, we are told that uh, we'd be free to stay. Once I had registered with the police, uh, 
they gave me, gave me a working permit or a residence permit and uh, in which it was stated that I could remain in the country as long as I desired, as long as I didn't take up employment, as long as I didn't engage in business. And there was a third reason given to me, which I've forgotten since. It was fine, because uh, I don't know how I could live without working. And uh, after looking around for some time, uh, one of our friends had a very good German camera called a Leica, and we decided that uh, photography may be an opening. We were not taking employment and were engaging in business, but uh, self-employment was our purpose. And that's the way we started. About a year uh, later, the one of the lady, the lady who was a, had a photographic studio in Galway, uh, decided that, uh, or got the feeling that I was taking away too much business from her, and she wrote to the Department of Justice. And a few days later, the two members of the police came to see me and told me that I was uh, not allowed to do any photography in Galway, would I close the studio immediately? This I did. And the following day I went to the Department of Justice and I met a gentleman there who told me that uh, never, not to mind them at all, to go back and reopen. And that if there was any problem, to refer them to him. I never had any problem since. Around 1942, 43, something around that, anyway, um, I had to go before court. Somebody gave me out that I'm illegal. Uh, so they had to act naturally. So I came before court. I had to go before court. And there was Justice O'Shannon, I think his name was. Justice O'Shannon. He was a wonderful man. He said to me, come over here. When I spoke, he said, come over here, take your chair and sit beside me, and you tell me all your story. So I sat beside him, and he gave me so much confidence that was able that I was able to open up to him, and I was speaking to him very freely, and he was he was looking at me and looking at me, and he said, "Well, I'm impressed what you're telling me." He said, "Now the only thing I can do, and I feel sorry, but I have to do it, give you the minimum penalty that is five pounds. You have to pay." And and he dismissed in the case. Well, after three days lying in the harbor, the immigration came down from Dublin. That is another thing which astounds us, because the first thing in all the other harbors was the first thing anybody came aboard is the immigration. He had took three days before they came down. <laughs> Probably one holidays, but. Uh, they asked us all the questions, and then they went back again. And I got my permission to stay here after four days. And I got uh, the okay to start work if I wanted to, or open my own business. We are here tonight celebrating a most important occasion, rural electrification for the parish of Bancher. Tonight, we intend to switch on the lights for this village. And I must say that was your own cooperation and your own enthusiasm that has won for you this great gift that will not merely help you from an economic point of view, but will help too 
with God's help, the social life of the parish. Now, we will switch on the lights for Bancher, and here goes in the name of God. From the very start, we are uh, fed on, on the, the idea of uh, nationalism, nationalism as it uh, took in Ireland. Uh, the books we read, the stories we read, were all m mostly about Irish, uh, Irish facts, Irish history, Irish uh, legends. And uh, that's the reason we, all the Britons, most of the Britons came to Ireland. Uh, one thing that shocked me, uh, less than a week, after my arrival in Galway, I was in the shop, uh, probably buying cigarettes, and the lady uh, of the house, or the, the one of the shop, uh, who wanted to learn French, asked me if I could teach her a few words, or said I would, and she said, ah, we were much better off with English, and I couldn't believe my ears. And anyway, that's what we turned to an island which was free, therefore could speak its own language, and we expected the Irish to be much more widely used. I was very disappointed, yeah. I met the Stapletons, actually. Um, when I was, I was living in one, of, one room with an old lady, and one day she said to me, when the war broke, just before the war broke out, she said, you know, you have to leave this room now because my, sister's, my daughter's coming over from Paris with her son, and I need, need the room, which I understood. I understood. But then being illegal and looking somewhere else for a room, I was really, it frightened me very much. And then I saw the evening mail and I looked into the advertisement um, column and here I saw um, a room to let and it was on the South Circle Road. And I went up there and a little girl, about 10 years of age, she opened the door and she was so very nice and so very refined. And then her father came and she said, come in. Then her father came upstairs, very tall, over six foot man, you know, very fine man, with a fiddle actually had in his hand. And I said, and he said to me, yes. And I said, I'm looking for a room. He said, come into the parlor. That time they called it a parlor. And I went in there and there was a piano. And when I saw the piano, I saw, God, they must be wonderful people. Once they have a piano and he has a fiddle in his hand, they must be musical. And when people are musical, sometimes I feel they have feeling. There's so much feeling in them. So we start, we start speaking, and then he showed me the room. And he said, are you satisfied? I said, I'm very satisfied. Could I move in? You can move in this evening, he said, if you want to. I was delighted. I took all my clothes and everything, and I moved in there. And then when I moved in, I was upstairs. The little boy came upstairs, knocked at the door. Please, would you come down? Mommy wants you to have a cup of tea downstairs. I thought this was really from home to home. And I went downstairs, and she made me a cup of tea, and she made an apple tart, and, and the kids were sitting around me, and she was talking to me, Mr. Stapleton. And all of a sudden, I felt I... I found a home. They were like parents to me. There is no doubt about it. That was my home. Um, he gave me, even when I had no money to pay for the room, 
he said to me not to worry. Everything be all right. And he said to me that if the Nazis come, uh, there's a shed out in the, in the back garden. I'm going to hide you there, or I'm going to tell him you're my daughter. And they will not come. He always gave me that hope. No, I haven't become an Irish citizen. And it's not because I don't like Ireland or anything like that. It's just it's still that little bit of German in me, you know. But I, I like to keep a little bit of little bit of German. But sometimes I do think German still, you know. But um, no, I I don't uh, I don't uh, like to take the Irish citizenship. I don't know why. Home. I hadn't had a proper home since I was 18. So my home, my longest home is here in Ireland. That's my home. I wouldn't go back to Germany except on holidays. I'm glad all the time if I were back here again. Here is home. Ireland is home, yeah. But Germany is just a place to visit. But then sometimes I get to thinking that Germany is my home. I'm kind of torn between the two countries. I, I, I like to be there in Germany for a while, but I like to be here because it's a free and easy life and the, the good life we have. And I mean, Ireland has been good to us, has been very good to us. Uh, we have the same privileges here, same rights. Like I, I go voting. And I vote for the country. So uh, I think I, I consider Ireland my home. Definitely. Well, up to the day I became Irish, I had to apply for a yearly uh, visa to stay. A walking permit. A walking permit. I had to do every year. And I got kind of brown off with it. So I just decided to become Irish. Why not? I live here. I work here. My, my children live here. Why shouldn't I be Irish? <laughs>